right, folks, what's up? This is John Lawrence, and this is episode 95. Could Chat GPT be a CRNA? <laughs> Today, I am joined by John Fratiani, who created the content for this episode as part of his doctorate in nurse anesthesia practice at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the role of artificial intelligence, AI programs, specifically ChatGPT, their role in anesthesia education, anesthesia practice, and whether ChatGPT specifically scores better or worse than student registered nurse anesthetist on board style exam questions. It is fascinating. You are definitely in for a treat. But before we get there, let me tell you a little bit about John. John Fratiani earned his Bachelor of Science in Nursing at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Master of Science in Nursing at the University of Alaska Anchorage, and then completed his critical care nursing training with the United States Air Force, where he served seven years on active duty. As the background work to this podcast, John conducted a study to determine if ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence or AI program, can assist us in providing anesthesia care to our patients. And we both want to give a special shout out to Peter Stallo, who founded Prodigy Anesthesia and Simvana, both of which are digital education tools for anesthesia trainees. Peter worked closely with John to grant access to Prodigy's vast database of board-style anesthesia questions. If you haven't checked out Prodigy or Simvana, which is a virtual reality-based anesthesia education platform, links are in the show notes. I also want to personally thank Peter for creating a great board program in Prodigy. It's all my wife and I and several of our classmates used to study for boards several years ago, and we all passed on the first try. So nice job, Peter, and thank you so much. And just in case you're wondering, I have zero financial links uh, to Prodigy or Peter Stallo or Simvana, uh, other than uh, it helped me pass boards and enter in a phenomenal career. So uh, no disclosures to list at the start of this podcast. And since this episode is part of John's doctoral work with Virginia Commonwealth University, we both kindly request that you take a really quick survey that's embedded in the show notes. It's five questions and will literally take you 30 seconds. So click the link and give John and me some feedback on how we did with this episode. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, hey, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's great to be here. So tell us how you became interested in this topic. So I noticed that artificial intelligence, AI for short, was in the news a lot lately, and it seemed like the next big thing. In just the past few months, major tech companies have released their own versions of what is known as generative AI. Google's BARD and Microsoft slash OpenAI's ChatGPT, that's generative pre-trained transformer, these are new generative AIs can do some truly remarkable things. They can debug computer code, tell jokes, and answer questions on a variety of different topics. And while these programs still have their problems, chatting with these programs really feels leaps and bounds ahead of the customer support chatbots you're probably used to talking to. ChatGPT recently passed practice licensing exams for both the bar and the US medical licensing exam, I looked at all of these developments and just knew that there had to be an anesthesia application. Let's get into a little bit of the background. Tell us a little bit more about artificial intelligence. What, what is that? Artificial intelligence is a scientific discipline that aims to give a computer 
the ability to perform tasks that humans currently perform. It's an attempt to replicate human intelligence in a computer. There, there seems to be this explosion of interest in AI recently. So why now? Why all the buzz? Really, it's the release of ChatGPT to the public free of charge back in November 2022. And although AI has been around for decades, this was the first time the public had the opportunity to try out one of these new generative AIs. And right now, anyone can actually go on openai.com and try it out for themselves for free. However, I would like to caveat that the more advanced uh, version called GPT-4 is only available through a subscription service for $20 a month that's referred to as GPT+. So you do have to pay for the most up-to-date, most advanced AI. Nice. So the, the chat GPT, again, GPT is for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Unpack that a little bit more for us. What do you mean when uh, people talk about generative AI? So generative AI is the latest and greatest thing. Legacy AI tech has been with us since about 1965 with the advent of what's called fuzzy logic. Now, fuzzy logic upgraded the original computer language, that's the ones and zeros of binary code, to decimals between zero and one. For example, 0.6 would represent 60% and so on. So with that development, a fuzzy logic, machines now had the ability to express the probability of the truth of a statement. It wasn't just black or white, right or wrong. That development is critical to these AIs because they rely very heavily on statistics. Now, fast forward 60 years and many advances later, and you have generative AI. Generative AI can provide more complex, more human-like responses. And they can also be trained on vast quantities of data. And you may hear terms being thrown around, such as large language models. And that just means that AIs are trained on lots and lots of written language. They can improve themselves based on human and other types of feedback. You may have seen the recent 60 Minutes broadcast about the Alpha Zero chess AI that improved from novice to expert chess player, able to beat uh, chess champions in just one day. It's this capacity for improvement, rapid improvement, coupled with the fact that AIs never need to sleep or rest. And that's why the potential for this technology is so large. With generative AI, you first feed a bunch of data into it. In the case of ChatGPT, it was a large chunk of the entire internet. And then you give it a prompt. And that prompt can be words. You can ask the AI a question. However, it can also be things like images, music, video, or computer code. The AI then uses the data it was trained on and responds to the prompt that you give it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just to highlight what you said about how fast these programs are learning, you know, able to learn chess in a day and beat chess champions. I've talked about expertise before on the podcast and its relevance to developing expertise for anesthesia providers. And some may be familiar with uh, Malcolm Gladwell's kind of popularizing the idea of the 10,000 hour rule. It was uh, Anders Ericsson, I guess, who did the research, the psychologist who did the research. And chess champions were one of the populations that he looked at and, and that it takes humans about 10,000 hours 
of deliberate practice to truly become masterful at something. So again, just the magnitude of that, that it takes that long for someone to truly become a chess champion or a master. And then these computer programs are learning to beat those individuals in all of that vast knowledge and experience knowledge in a day of programming and trial and error. It's truly remarkable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely an explosion of technology that we've not seen in quite some time. Yeah. So one of the conflicts that's come up is that these programs scour the internet for the data that they pull from in order to generate their responses to the prompts that you put into them. But one of the challenges is that the internet has a lot of conflicting information. So how does a generative AI sort through this conflicting data and present data that's reliable? That really is the secret sauce of generative AI technology. And I can't honestly give you a straightforward answer on that because I honestly don't know. Each AI does it a little bit differently. And some of this is proprietary and confidential. ChatGPT specifically uses human trainers to fine-tune its responses. However, generative AIs all use statistics. Generative AIs are essentially probability generators. They will analyze the input that you give them, and then they're going to compare it to the data that they're trained on and generally feed you the best statistical match. Finally, they're going to give you the answer that has that highest percentage match that based on the data that they were trained on. So can you give us an example? Okay, so I'm going to have a little bit of role playing here. I'm going to have you play the AI and I'm going to be the human asking you the question. Okay, let's go for it. All right. The color of the sky is blank. Uh, I'm going to go with blue. Okay. When you answered that, what were you thinking about? Well, the first image that popped in my head was a blue sky because I think that's what I see most often. Okay, right. Your brain remembers seeing blue skies thousands of times over the course of your life and figures that's most likely the answer. However, someone else might have had different life experiences. Maybe they live in a cloudy or polluted place where the sky is more often gray. Now, you've probably seen a gray sky before, but it doesn't happen as often as blue. So when I asked you the question, you answered blue. So how do you filter? I mean, the responses that are given are really only going to be as good as the data set that the program is pulling from. Exactly. In the case of human beings, we can learn from experience. Maybe the other guy moves to Maine and experiences all of those blue skies up there with you. And based on that new experience, that guy's going to change his answer from gray to blue. The groundbreaking thing about ChatGPT, BARD, and these other generative AIs is that they can learn from experience and improve over time. That sounds fascinating. So now that we know a little bit more about how this AI technology works, tell us about your doctoral project. I wanted to know if generative AI could be useful to anesthesia providers. I reviewed the literature and didn't find much on the application of generative AIs in direct anesthesia patient care. However, I did find some articles that discussed testing ChatGPT's general medical knowledge. They would give ChatGPT some patient symptoms and ask it to build a differential diagnosis. Now, ChatGPT generally did quite well with that and even outperformed some human physicians in some cases. So I decided to build on that and test its anesthesia knowledge. All right. So how'd you do it? I did what any good researcher does, and I begged for help on Facebook. (laughs) 
and you found someone to help you. Absolutely. Uh, Peter Stallo was good enough to answer my plea. Peter is the owner and founder of Prodigy Anesthesia, which is an NCE review course similar to Apex or Valley. For those non-anesthesia people in the audience, the NCE is the initial certification exam for certified registered nurse anesthetists, CRNAs. Partnering with Peter gave me access to over 5,000 quality practice questions, but it gave me CRNA student performance data going back years and years. And then I use some of the questions from Prodigy and give it to the AI, ChatGPT, and compare the data sets. Nice. So you basically made a practice CRNA licensing exam to see whether ChatGPT could do better than CRNA students. Essentially, yes, that's exactly right. Before we can have AIs like ChatGPT helping us in the OR, we first have to evaluate their level of knowledge. And if they can do at least as well as future CRNAs, then it's possible that there may be some sort of use case down the road. Nice. So how did you build this exam? How did you get it tested on ChatGPT? So I wanted the exam to best represent a real NCE. The NCE covers a broad range of topics and is considered one of the gold standards out there to assess anesthesia knowledge. For context, a real NCE is adaptive and reacts to the test taker. The more questions you get right, the harder it gets, and vice versa. The number of questions ranges from 100 to 170 with a mix of select one mobile choice, select two plus mobile choice, image hotspot, matching, and free text items. 30 questions are ungraded and used solely for research purposes. From a content standpoint, 20% of the test covers basic sciences, 20% covers equipment, instrumentation, and technology, 35% covers general principles of anesthesia, and 25% covers considerations of special populations. To make the exam, I first grabbed the 2023 NCE outline from the NBCRNA's website, which contained all of the information I just went over. Then I purposely selected 120 questions from the Prodigy test bank that best matched the NCE outline. Finally, I went to openai.com and copy and pasted them into ChatGPT one by one. And just as a disclaimer, I did pay the $20 for the ChatGPT Plus, which gives you the most advanced AI. Nice. I then, yeah. So I then compared ChatGPT's performance to nine years worth of CRNA student performance data from Prodigy. If, for instance, 40% of human respondents got a question right, then I scored that question as a 0.4. 0.6 for 60%, 0.8 for 80%, and so on. One side note that I want to make is that I started with 100 questions. I then added another 20 free text response and two plus multiple choice questions after noticing that the AI particularly struggled with those type of questions. However, human CRNA students also struggle with these types of questions. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it might be helpful for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the technology yet, ChatGPT, if they've not played around with it, to get an example of what this would actually look like. So can you give us like a sample test question that you fed the program? Absolutely. Sure. I'd be happy to. The following is one of the 120 questions that I gave the AI. Which of the following statements about ultrasound guided nerve blocks are true? A- a low-frequency ultrasound is best for viewing superficial structures. B, 
tissue that reflects ultrasound waves poorly appears white on the monitor. C, an ultrasound can identify structures as small as 0.1 millimeters in diameter. Or D, a medical ultrasound machine functions between the frequencies of 2 and 13 megahertz. Now, GPT 3.5, that's the November 2022 version, answered A, low-frequency ultrasound is best for viewing superficial structures. And of course, we know that that's not true, so that was an incorrect answer. GPT-4, that's the newer March 2023 version, answered D, and medical ultrasound machine functions between the frequencies of 2 and 13 megahertz. And of course, we know that is the correct response. GPT-4 got it right, but GPT-3.5 did not. GPT-4 also provided a detailed explanation to go along with its answer, while in my test, GPT-3.5 gave no explanation at all. Um, and I'll read part of GPT-4's explanation to you, but your listeners can see the entire exchange in the show notes. And I do want to caveat, if you were to copy and paste this into the uh, chat GPT that you can get for free on OpenAI, now that's the old version, the 3.5. You will have to pay the $20 a month to get the GPT Plus to get access to GPT-4 to fully replicate uh, what I was able to do. Okay, so let me read the response to you. So it answers D, it gives you the correct answer. And then the newest AI says, medical ultrasound machines generally operate within a frequency of 2 and 13 megahertz. Higher frequencies are better for visualizing superficial structures, while lower frequencies provide better penetration for deeper structures. Tissue that reflects ultrasound waves well appears white, hyperechoic on the monitor, and tissues as small as 0.1 millimeters in diameter can be difficult to visualize using ultrasound as the resolution may not be sufficient. So really impressive there. It not only gives you the right answer, but you get a sense that it's not just guessing because it gives you uh, an explanation that makes sense as well. Yeah. And it looks like it kind of touches on why all the other answers are wrong. Yeah, I was really impressed by that as well. So if you're studying, for instance, and you were to throw that in there, um, it could really explain and help you learn. Uh, so that might be one test-taking strategy for people as they're preparing for boards. How did the CRNA students who took this question on Prodigy uh, do with that question? So 62% of human CRNA respondents to this question got it right. And that makes it one of the harder of the 120 questions that I studied. That's very interesting. Uh, so you painstakingly tried to recreate an NCE based on this third-party exam review content and then plugged it into ChatGPT. How did the program do when stacked up against CRNA students in the data from Prodigy? ChatGPT 3.5, that's the earlier version from November 2022, got 68 of 120 questions right. And that represents a score of 57% correct. And that was during my February 2023 testing. Based on Prodigy's data, the average human CRNA student got 90 of 120 questions right for a score of 75% correct. Student attempts on the 120 sampled questions ranged from 1,011 responses for the least commonly answered question to 11,334 responses on the most answered question. Now, we don't actually know how many students answered each question because any single student had the ability to answer a question multiple times. 
In contrast, the AI was given each question once. Yeah, that's interesting. So on this data, it looks like the CRNA students are outpacing ChatGPT in terms of how they did. Maybe in this case, but that's not really the whole story. Remember that generative AI is constantly improving. I gave the March 2023 version called ChatGPT4 all of the questions that the old version missed, and it got many of them right. And if you combine the correct responses from both versions, the new score would be 102 right out of 120, which represents a score of 85% correct. Yeah, that's very interesting. So chat GPT 3.5 back in February when you tested got 57% of these questions correct, where at that time, well, historical data would show that CRNA students got 75% of them right. But then the updated software program for ChatGPT got 85% of the questions right. So there's this improvement that's now outpacing the average CRNA uh, student responses. Is that correct? That's correct. What's funny about this is like it kind of reminds me of CRNA students, right? And so the the experience that a lot of CRNA students have is taking the C exam, which is another uh, standardized testing prep test to get themselves ready for NCE. And oftentimes students do really poorly the first time they go take that exam. And then they keep learning and they come back and do much better. So it seems like ChatGPT is on the same path. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. It's learning just like we are. Nice. So what do we do with all of this? How do you, how do you interpret how ChatGPT is doing when correlated with uh, CRNA student performance? First, I think it's important to state that there are significant limitations in my study. First, this isn't the actual NCE. The uh, NBCRNA re- you know, refused my request to use the an actual test or the actual sample questions. This is, in fact, a practice test from a third-party test prep company. And second, these are not licensed, experienced CRNAs taking care of patients who are taking these exam questions. These are CRNA students studying in preparation for their initial licensing exam, and presumably they're going to have a lot more knowledge by the time they take the real thing and start taking care of patients. And third, ChatGPT can't answer certain types of questions that are featured on the real NCE, matching, image hotspot, those are examples. And that's really a problem because so much of everyday anesthesia practice involves image recognition. You have to know anatomy in order to place an endotracheal tube, for example. Now, having said all that, I think that ChatGPT clearly has a lot of anesthesia knowledge. And as it improves, I do see a place for it in the operating room. Yeah. So where do you see this technology going in the future uh, in relation to anesthesia practice? Soon, I think we're going to see generative AIs integrated into electronic medical records. Think about how massive a patient's electronic chart can be these days. They may take dozens of medications, have an allergy list that won't even fit on the screen, and may be constantly in and out of the hospital. You've got labs, vital signs, ECGs, chest x-rays, echoes, progress notes. Ask yourself, with the reasonable amount of time, uh, the time that you have in a typical day, can you really get a full picture of a patient's condition with the technology that we currently use? AI can rapidly analyze all of that complex medical data and recommend evidence-based interventions. It could really fundamentally reshape the way that we do our jobs and enhance patient safety. 
Yeah, I, th- I think this is really a fascinating possibility that probably by the time you and I are wrapping up our careers, that generative AI integration into how we're doing our work may very much be a reality, uh, which is crazy to think about the leaps in technology. I mean, the CRNAs that are still practicing today, some of them remember when like the pulse ox came out, right? Like they, they practiced before there was pulse ox symmetry. And now we're sitting here going, oh yeah, look at this cool AI stuff. Maybe that's going to have a role in anesthesia where like by the time we're done with our careers, people are going to be like, remember the time before generative AI helped us problem solve in the OR? No way. You practiced back then. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, So it's interesting to think though, about how, how this might actually be functional, you know, would Epic pair with chat GPT? I think at the very least, there's going to be another AI technology just like it that's going to be integrated into Epic and all of the other competitors, Cerner, et cetera. Yeah, of course. I wanted to get your opinion on this. I think one of the, I mean, you you hinted at it just a minute ago, but the ability of artificial intelligence programs to look at the vast array of data inputs from reading an echocardiogram to real-time vital sign analysis and taking a look at labs in terms of helping to augment provider decision-making in the operating room. I think there's potential there. I know, I believe it's an, an EPIC program right now, actually can make recommendations. Like if your blood pressure intraoperatively has been, you know, if it hits below a certain parameter, you might get a pop-up that says, hey, your BP is, you know, out of range you might consider giving some sort of, you know, vasopressor or something like that. But I'm thinking back to a case I have familiarity with recently at this hospital, providers were doing a renal transplant case. And once the renal clamp was unclamped, very quickly thereafter, the patient went into cardiac arrest and unfortunately did not survive a prolonged resuscitation in the operating room. And it was confounded by really an unknown set of variables that precipitated that event. There wasn't like a particular, we put our finger on the pulse, this is why, you know, from hypotension or hyperkalemia or possible allergic reaction or anaphylaxis to something. There wasn't a, you know, there was a muddled differential diagnosis for the providers in the room. And I think about the possibility of, if you had full integration of AI, you know, will we be in an OR someday where an AI system could take real-time data to say, hey, this person, you know, there's a risk analysis based upon probability of their pre-op labs, maybe even an intraoperative ABG. Here's the estimated EBL right now in the vital sign data. Read your anesthetics and what's been given and understand the implications of all of that and then give you suggestions as to say, your patient's actually in a pretty precarious situation right now. You know, maybe it maybe it has some sort of impending doom sensibility to say you should start making some changes now or even in a code situation, help you run differential diagnoses to augment your decision making. It's very fascinating. I think all of those things, that's certainly a possibility and uh, it will definitely enhance uh, our capabilities in the operating room to provide safe patient care. So I want to talk about a couple of other things. One of them is what's your take on how this technology is impacting anesthesia education? 
So ChatGPT is already presenting challenges at the collegiate level, and countless university students were caught using it during this past semester's finals. ChatGPT has the ability to write multi-page essays in under a minute. Now, there are AI detectors out there. One example is called GPT-0, but that can be easily bypassed with a bit of rewording and a thesaurus. I don't believe the honor system is going to be enough here. Educators are really going to need to get creative and find new ways to assess learning. Yeah, that's interesting. Tell us more about you know some of the beneficial aspects of this technology and how it could get integrated into our practices. I mean, I don't think it's going to be just annoying pop-ups in the EMR. Um, I listened to a podcast from the University of Toronto professor Avi Goldfarb, and he said, quote, artificial intelligence gives millions of people the skills that only thousands have, end quote. Now, maybe you're a CRNA that's not really comfortable with pediatrics, but one day you have to do some sort of peds dental case. Um, and AIs like ChatGPT could really help you set up that case, maybe recommend some drugs to have drawn up and ready, tell you what size of a tracheal tube or OPA to use. You could, of course, look all that up on your phone, but this would ultimately be a lot faster and more comprehensive. Once this technology is refined, it could serve as a constantly available second opinion it could really help make our care that much safer. So I definitely want to ask you about this question. I think this is a concern. It's been brought up you know, for years in terms of anesthesia providers and other healthcare providers. Is there a role or a possibility someday that you know, artificial intelligence, maybe coupled with robotics, are going to take people's jobs? I think that's an ongoing problem and concern. Anytime that new technology comes out, I mean, you know, you think about the horse and buggy being replaced by cars and all of the people displaced then and that had to be retrained. And I think that the, there's going to be a transition, but I think eventually it's going to smooth out. And there are things that, you know, the government's going to have to do to ease that transition. While AIs like ChatGPT are very capable, I think we're a long way off from AI doing anesthesia completely for us. First, Having knowledge and applying it are two different things. And second, as you may remember from earlier, the answers are only as good as the data set. The data we have in anesthesia right now is just not good enough to guide an AI's actions. There's a lot of intuition still guiding practice to this day. Right now, you might feed it bispectral index or vital signs data and expect it to somehow titrate propofol and phenylephrine. But most of us can think of plenty of times when one or both of these monitors went haywire. And is AI going to know that your surgeon doesn't localize well or doesn't wait for the local to work and anticipate that you need to get the patient a little deeper on their anesthetic depth? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think those are real issues that will have to get worked out before you, know, you can stick a robot in the OR and expect it to give anesthesia safely. Absolutely. And I think there's a critical human aspect that's important to consider as well. I know a lot of us got into this field because we like the patients being asleep, but people really do like interacting with other people as a general rule. And no matter how good AI gets, I can't foresee a patient ever wanting to fully give up control of their lives to a machine while they're asleep during surgery. Humans are going to be involved at least on some level. And that's why it's so important to leverage all of those soft people skills that we have moving forward. I also want to use this opportunity to encourage all of your listeners to think about the value that they might be able to bring beyond the operating room. 
maybe you can be one of the people who helps refine this technology and integrate it into practice. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting point. You know, I often encourage people to think about passing boards as not the finish line. It is it's an important finish line. You've wrapped up school, you pass boards, it should definitely be celebrated. But in many ways, that's when the starting gun goes off on your career and looking at, you know, quality improvements, systems thinking, you know, where we are as clinicians and where we could get to someday. It takes engagement from providers. And so I think if this podcast is, you know, could serve as a spark, it could uh, trip some light bulbs on in some people's minds. This may be an area that providers can get involved in helping to shape in the future. So what are some of the limitations with AI and, and possibly its integration into clinical practice? So I think that accountability is a huge deal but also so is accuracy. Now, in my study, the best AI was 85% accurate. Now, that might be really good, even better than some humans, but it's not perfect. And who do you blame when the AI is wrong and a patient is harmed? Well, right. I mean, I think liability becomes a big issue. Who, who gets a lawsuit, the AI program or the providers behind it? Right. The AI doesn't have an insurance coverage or any money. How do patients and their families support themselves and pay any associated medical costs if they can't seek financial damages? Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, you know, the people who create the AI, they got some money. <laughs> they, if, they definitely do. If I had to guess. So I, I would leave it to the lawyers to find a way. Uh, but it's a real question, right? It's a question for healthcare law, right? It's an evolving question. If you integrate an artificial intelligence technology to augment decision-making, where does liability lie? And then where where do claims go? How are claims paid if, in fact, there is some sort of fault, um, you know, at the hands of these programs? And then what's the role of, you know, the actual healthcare providers who are delivering that care if somehow they're caught up in the mix of following the directions that an AI program gave or possibly ignoring the directions that an AI program gave if that becomes the standard of care, right? To practice with AI augmenting your decision-making. And then if you choose not to, then are you liable? Absolutely. I mean, that's definitely a problem. I mean, either way you go, you're kind of damned if you do and, and damned if you don't. I mean, say that the AI you know, gives you advice and you take it and it gives you the wrong answer. Uh, what do you do there? I mean, uh, you follow the, sta the standard of care, which was listening to the AI. Um, can the patient seek any damages in that case? And also there are privacy concerns. I mean, if you use this technology, AI would, of course, need access to all of your personal medical information. And so we'll definitely need some sort of safeguards to prevent the big tech companies from mining your personal medical data for profit. Yeah, privacy is a huge question that is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. I, I think one of the things I wanted to touch on that you had just mentioned is the accuracy of the information. It's really fascinating, right? Because we think that, you know, you go to a hospital and you expect to get infallible care right now, but you often don't. Humans make mistakes. Uh, I've been more fascinated with that kind of domain of thinking in, in healthcare and how we design safe systems, you know, the last few years of my career and this idea of a just culture 
and that we look at systems thinking in terms of, you know, risk analysis and how our systems contribute to medical errors. And then what's the role of providers there? You put artificial intelligence into some sort of like augmentation of decision-making. It's fascinating how it influences those concepts of liability, just culture, provider involvement in decision-making, whether or not they relied on AI, is AI accurate? Are providers accurate? What do you do when there's a conflict? How is judgment applied when you might be getting recommendations and you may know intuitively based upon your years of expert practice and deliberate practice and training uh, that maybe you need to make a different decision? So definitely a lot of tough legal dilemmas, even ethical dilemmas with no clear answers, I think right now, but it's a fascinating topic. It's a fascinating discussion. I wanted to, to touch base on one more thing that we had, we had mentioned earlier, which is using AI as a study resource. Would you recommend that graduate students right now use ChatGPT in order to you know, help them in some way for studying? I think if anything, I, to be more precise, I'll say this. We've already identified that the free program Uh, ChatGPT is the 3.5 level software program, and that has inherent errors that you have uh, identified in your study. And so if they are going to be using ChatGPT, definitely use the paid program, which again, we should obviously state that we have no financial relationship with OpenAI or any of these software programs. But would you say that it is accurate enough right now to be used as a study program? Well, yeah, uh, I have no financial conflicts here. They're not giving me any of that money. Trust me, I would I would take it if they did. But uh, I did pay the uh, twenty dollars a month just so that I could um, do my project and and graduate. Of course, I would. Uh, I've actually people have asked me this, and I would say no, uh, just because there is a degree of inaccuracy and it's still significant. Even with the most up-to-date, you're looking at 85% accurate. So you're wrong 15% of the time to put it another way. And so it's possible that you could be studying the wrong thing, learning the wrong thing. And that's 15% of questions that you may miss on the real exam. So I don't know that the technology is to the point where we can rely on it for critical things. It's right now kind of an entertainment, uh, an area for research at this point until it's improved. And of course, it goes without saying, you have to follow the policies of your institution, honor code, et cetera. Maybe in the future, policies are going to evolve. But right now, anything surrounding ChatGPT kind of has an air of plagiarism and cheating. Mm. And you really don't want to be caught up in that. You have worked way too hard. So I would steer away from it and use it as a source of maybe entertainment at this point. I think one of the other important limitations to touch on is when I signed up for it, there were disclaimers that the program presented for itself, limitations that the program presented for itself to say, you can expect data to be most accurate if it was available prior to 2021. And you know we're recording this again in early 2023. So it's self-identifying a lag time of a couple of years. Uh, for instance, I said, I had a buddy recently, this is another interesting use of the program. He's a CRNA I work with. He recently took a vacation to Paris with his family and he is an eight-year-old son. And he typed into the program, give me an itinerary for a four-day vacation to Paris with an eight-year-old. And within 10 seconds, he had a four-day detailed itinerary of where he should go and the 
best restaurants and museums to see. And he did many of those things and it turned out to be a, a fantastic vacation. Uh, one of the limitations that, that kind of spurred my interest. And so I hopped on chat GPT and I said, what's the weather in Paris today around the time of this guy's trip? And it said, you know, as a language modeling program, I can't tell you up to date, real time data. And you know, it gave some sort of explanation. And then I said, what's the weather typically for, you know, springtime in Paris or April in Paris. And it said, based upon climate data, you know, and it spit out like your, your average temperature is probably this and that, and your average predicted rain and precipitation is this or that, but it couldn't tell you the weather today. Right. And so you, you compare it to like medical textbooks in terms of a study resource, you know, and it goes back to, I think, answering that question, can you use this as a study resource Maybe there might be some interesting things based upon, you know, you talk about like, you know, help explain uptake and distribution of volatile anesthetics. It's probably going to give you some interesting content on that, but it's not the same as reading a textbook. However, textbooks are also at times inaccurate and textbooks also become outdated. You know, people have said in the past, like, if you want to know what's actually happening right now, consume social media, get on and see, you know, what are people talking about? If you want to know what the latest RCT say, you need to read the medical journals. And if you want to know what practice was five to 10 years ago, read the latest edition of any textbook that by about the time a textbook gets published, some of that information is already outdated, just just based upon the pace of new information coming out. So it's interesting that you know ChatGPT has a lag time. It's got built-in error rates and inconsistencies and things that aren't accurate. So, you know, I like like we've said, it's probably worth using caution as people utilize this for study tools or aids uh, for their own learning. So anyway, I know I'm rambling on there a little bit. It's a fascinating topic. John, is there anything else that you would like to say before we sound off? So I would like to say that there are certainly dangers and problems associated with the advent of AIs like ChatGPT, but there are very smart people working on these issues and AI does have tremendous upsides. It makes us as humans far more productive and equips us with skills and knowledge that it would be really hard for us to attain otherwise. I'm going to leave you again with the words of the University of Toronto professor Avi Goldfarb. He offered this piece of advice to those who are concerned about being displaced by the expansion of AI. Quote, the people who understand AIs and can use it to complement what they are already doing are going to ascend in the future, end quote. And after listening to this podcast, I hope that your listeners are a little bit better equipped to do just that. Nice. Well said, John. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing this topic to us. Thanks for doing the study. And it's fascinating. I really appreciate your effort. It's been my pleasure, John. Awesome. And if you'd like to learn more about this topic, you're going to find links to the show notes that John has put together for you. He's got the example test questions and responses from uh, ChatGPT. You'll be able to see that. And then a whole slew of citations from the literature that are also uh, relevant to this topic. So again, John, thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.